Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Dr. Deanna Todd-Zanatos, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at the University of Louisville and Norton Children's Hospital. I am also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Amy Lasanti and Paige Stedman. Dr. Lasanti is a nurse scientist, clinical nurse specialist from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She is adjunct faculty at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. At the PCICS annual meeting in December of 2020, Dr. Lasanti spoke on the parental role and depression in mothers of newborns with congenital heart disease. Paige is a nurse practitioner in the CVICU at Sanger Health and Vascular Levine Children's Hospital at Atrium Health. She is also the mother to a five-year-old son, Elliot, born with Tetralogy of Fallot. At the PCICS meeting, Paige delivered a talk titled, What I Need from My Surgeons and Intensivists, A View from a Parent and APN. I want to thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. So, Amy, I'd like to start with you just giving a a little bit of a summary of the study that you presented on maternal um, depression in um, mothers of neonates with congenital heart disease at the recent meeting. Sure. Yes. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Um, The study I presented was really exploring maternal depression and factors that may influence depressive symptoms in postpartum mothers of newly born infants admitted to the pediatric cardiac intensive care unit um, and really looking at that early time period of the um, preoperative period. So just those first few days after giving birth. My past research that I've done, I've focused a lot on parent mental health. um, And many of my studies have looked at anxiety as a stress response uh, symptom. And so this was my first examination, trying to understand depressive symptoms. Um, The study is really grounded in a model that I worked on in my dissertation work called the PCICU Parental Stress Model. And it really um, describes how the parent stress experience can be, um, there are sources of stress that parents are exposed to, and that these sources of stress parents can react to and exhibit stress responses, such as anxiety or depressive symptoms. And so real briefly, some of the stressors that parents can experience can, um, of course, arise from that um, critically ill infant. So seeing their infant in pain, seeing their infant's appearance, all the lines, tubes, and wires connected to that infant, seeing their infant um, you know, intubated or sedated and uh, crying, those, those can be extremely stressful experiences for parents. Um, the environment it- itself, of course, right? Many staff, the, um, all of the technology that we see, um, all of the other, even the other sick children in the unit, these can all be, it's a stressful environment, the monitor alarms going off, these can be very stressful. Um, and then factors can arise from within parents themselves, right? So there can be um, underlying tendencies towards becoming anxious. Um, there can be um, other things going on in their life, right, that could be potentially also stressful. But one um, area that I'm particularly interested in is this idea of parental role alteration, um, which has shown in my other studies to um, have a relationship with with the stress response of anxiety symptoms. And so in 30 mothers of infants, I was able to collect data on these stressors um, and depressive symptoms. And what we found is that it really was parental role alteration that was the strongest predictor of depressive symptoms. It actually explained um, almost 
almost two thirds of the of the variance in depressive symptoms. Um, and so it, this kind of was an exciting finding for me, especially as a nurse scientist. I'm, I really believe that nursing is is well positioned, right, to um, enhance the parental role that that mothers can have at the bedside. And even in those early days, preoperatively, mothers can be holding their baby and feeding their baby and and, and being a part of the care um, and connecting with their babies, even they're in the ICU. That's excellent. And so by parental role alteration, you really mean that they don't get to have that normal parental experience, right? Exactly. So parental role alteration is really defined as not being able to or not knowing how to connect with your child and do those almost instinctual caregiving things that all mothers, you know, I'm a mother. What was the first thing I wanted to do when I had my baby? I wanted to hold my baby. I wanted to feed my baby and care for my baby. And that is completely altered when uh, a mother has a baby with congenital heart disease. These babies are often, you know, immediately taken away to have life-saving care in the pediatric cardiac intensive care unit. Um, And with the lines, tubes, and wires, it it can be really difficult for mothers to just do those instinctual parental role things. When you gave your talk at PCICS, I felt like the percentage of mothers at risk for clinical depression based on your research was staggeringly high. Yes. So nearly half of the mothers, 47% of the mothers in um, my sample of mothers, this was 30 mothers. So it was a small pilot study, but um, there are other studies that have shown these high of rates in not, nobody's looked at it specifically in this preoperative period, but in the postoperative period, or even at home, um, up to half of mothers can be um, experiencing depression. And, And this is really important for us to know that if we can identify it this early, that this is happening this early. And the earlier we um, can screen for these mothers and identify them and enhance their parental role, my hope is that we can start to mitigate some of these symptoms. And in your research, have you found any trends? Is it more likely in first-time moms versus mothers with other children? Or were there any specific characteristics that made it more likely for the moms to develop depression? I'm not seeing patterns yet. So in um, one of my studies, I showed that mothers who had more than one child had uh, significantly higher state anxiety symptoms. So that's the amount of anxiety symptoms they were exhibiting. This was in the post-operative period. In this study, I did compare mothers that had one child, that one child in the ICU versus more than one child, and we didn't find any significant differences. Although it was close, and so I, I my plan is in the future to have larger sample sizes um, to see if that, that may help us understand that a little bit more. Great. And so Paige, I was really um, impressed with your talk. It was a great to get that perspective of someone who is both a cardiac ICU provider, as well as the mom of one of these um, CHD warriors. And so I'm really interested in getting your perspective on how those of us who are working in the cardiac ICU can support these families. Okay. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you guys today. And um, a lot of what Amy was talking about in her study really kind of hits home in a lot of ways. I mean, I will never forget the day that um, we got the diagnosis of Elliot having tetralogy of Fallot. It was at our one of our 20-week ultrasounds. Um, and at that point, I had been a nurse practitioner in the CVICU for over five years. So I always kind of describe that as a blessing and a curse. 
Um, you know, I think it was more of a curse before he was born and before we could kind of see what exactly was going to happen. Um, as all of us know, any kind of medical diagnosis, there's a big spectrum. Um, and so just kind of going through all those scenarios in my head that I, I had seen firsthand is, you know, was he going to be cyanotic? Was he going to need, need a neonatal repair or a shunt or was he going to be fine? And were we going to be able to take him home? Um, that was, that was all kind of really hard. And I always also kind of talk about, you know, people talk about post-traumatic stress. Um, and for me, it really was kind of like pre, I remember like looking at chest x-rays and taking care of patients when I was still pregnant. Um, and just kind of like, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, and having that countdown in my head and, you know, in four months, this is going to be Elliot's x-ray that people are going to be looking at and talking about or in three months. Um, so yeah, Amy, I think that's really exciting, great work that you're doing. Um, as far as like supporting families, I always say that, you know, and my husband is not medical at all. And so he always has like, I think, good insight into this, but um, just having that compassion, which I think a lot of us do and remembering that no matter where, like in our minds, how severe that, that child's illnesses or, you know, in some, we might think like, oh, this is a vascular ring or this is an ASD. Like, why are these parents so high stress? This in most, most situations is the, the most stressful thing that this family has ever had to go to go through. And I remember talking to one of my old patients and she had, it was like her, her niece had an ear infection and she was talking to her, um, her sister and kind of trying to talk her off a off a wall and she was I was like how how do you do that when you are waiting here with your your child like how do you have that much compassion she's like this is the worst thing that they're going through at that moment and I think just having that awareness um can can make a big difference and to the families and and how we care for them absolutely I think I always try to tell our critical care fellows that pretty much every time they meet a new family this is probably the worst day of their life this is the worst thing that has happened to them up until now that their child is in the ICU in, in most instances. So I think that having that awareness and that compassion for that is, is so important. So to both of you, what do you think as providers at the bedside, how do we notice that this is an issue for this family? I think it's so easy for us to be so focused on the patient and the plan and the operation and any complications, the hypoxia, the blood gas, the ventilator. And it's easy for us to overlook the process and the impact that this hospital stay, that this diagnosis has on this family. What are some clues that, that we can, or some ways for us to sort of check ourselves when we make rounds, when we interact with these families every day to ensure that, that we're picking up on, on the fact that this family is struggling. I, th I think one of the first things is just using people, um, you know, people's names, um, you know, and always calling the child by their first name, um, you know, referring to the parent, if you, if you can buy their, their first or last name, um, instead of maybe just like mom or dad, um, and just, I think just by starting out that way kind of sets the tone of this is going to be 
personal and, and individualized. And I think just kind of setting up the expectation of what rounds are going to look like, um, you know, making sure that they're aware that they are, they are welcome to join if they would like that this time that you need to devote to, to their child to talk about a lot of what might sound like medical foreign language to them, but ensure them that they will have an opportunity to get their questions answered um, and their concerns addressed, whether that's going to be right after rounds or if someone's going to circle back like later in the day. Um, I think that can give, give parents and families a lot of peace of mind. As far as, as clues, I, and Amy, you might be able to answer that better, better than I can, but I guess I would just maybe look at the willingness of um, the engagement that the family has um, and knowing that just because they may not want to be present for rounds doesn't mean that, that they're not engaged. That they might just feel intimidated, um, especially if you are at a teaching hospital. Uh, there could be 15 people easily in your rounding team. And that's very overwhelming to, to one parent. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Paige. I think um, some of my past studies that I've done, I have at least three now that have measured uh, anxiety symptoms in parents, both mothers and fathers in the post-operative period in the ICU. These are severe anxiety symptoms that parents are experiencing. And so you can't assume that just because a parent is sitting there at the bedside, potentially with a flat affect or um, seems sort of paralyzed at the bedside that, you know, I'll hear comments at the bedside, like, oh, these parents, they don't get what's going on. Like it may not be that they don't get what's going on. It may be that they are having so many anxiety symptoms that that's what's paralyzing them, not that they don't understand. Um, and so I agree with you. We need to make sure that that parents understand, um, but we also need to have compassion for the symptoms that they may be experiencing and not making assumptions. Do you think that it's good to openly address this at the bedside and at the beginning of their admission say, you know, we understand that this may be a very difficult process. And if you are feeling stressed or like you're struggling from or overwhelmed from all of this, that, that we want you to reach out to us. Do you think that's an appropriate? Sometimes I worry that they're so overwhelmed at the beginning. I don't want to throw anything else out them, but I also want them to know that what they may be feeling would be a very normal response. Yes. I mean, I've had many parents and, and Paige, you've lived through this, so please chime in. But um, I've had many parents tell me like, thank you for for telling me that there are studies out there showing that parents do experience anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. Like I had no idea that that was going to be part of this experience. Um, and so I, I do think it's important to normalize things in that way that, you know, it, you may be feeling, you know, whatever you might be, you might be feeling really sad today. That's okay. Are you, you know, making sure that we can give them some like simple coping measures, like making sure they're sleeping at night, making sure they're getting breaks, making sure that they're eating and drinking. Cause sometimes parents can even forget to do those simple things. Um, but I go back to some of what my research has been consistently showing is that, um, you know, parents want to be a part of the care of their child. So every day I'm encouraging, um, you know, nurses at our bedside and, and even in rounding to say, hey, you know, let, let's talk about what we can have you do with your with your child today. Maybe, you, you know, even if a child's on ECMO, parents can still participate in the care, right? They might not be able to do skin to skin care, but they could certainly touch their child, 
talk to their child, read to their child, um, you know, be that second support when a, when the nurse has to, you know, suction or, or do things like that, even, um, you know, rubbing the, their patient, their baby's head. Um, they're, I'm sad when I see parents sitting paralyzed at the bedside, feeling like they can't do anything for their child. And I think it's up to us to empower parents to connect with their, with their child every single day as often as possible. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, addressing that and normalizing that at the beginning of a hospitalization is totally appropriate. Like you said, that's also a time where parents are getting a lot of information thrown at them. Um, So just being mindful of that and maybe being cognizant that maybe there needs to be like a, we addressed it at the beginning, but you know, every couple of days, we're going to just kind of touch back in and make sure that everything's going okay. And I think it's extremely important for parents to know that, that these are normal um, feelings and emotions um, and struggles that they're having. I remember um, when we first got Elliot's diagnosis, like what I really was longing for was not like talking to the surgeon and the intensivist and the nurse, you know, all the specialists. I wanted to talk to other moms and dads because I kind of wanted to know that, what should I expect? And to have a medical care provider also kind of help normalize that as part of the child's team, I think could be very powerful. I think it's also really important to have, um, and I know this has been something that a lot of programs I've been at have struggled with, but what kind of resources can we have for the parents? You know, a lot of us are at freestanding children's hospitals. We don't necessarily have um, psychologists and people like that who can you know, see a parent as a patient, but I think, you know, finding ways to navigate that um, and having a, a support system or at least a list of resources that we can give parents would be extremely beneficial. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, one of the things that is so remarkable is the sheer number of parents who are who are suffering from this. And I think, one of the things that that I've often noticed is sort of that that angry family, that family that lashes out. They may be sort of suffering the most, and it's it's unfortunate because it's a bit of a catch twenty two. Mostly people want to get away from them, and they don't mm-hmm. want to to engage with them. But I've found that that if you take the time to sit down and talk with them, um, you can get to the root of some of these things that that it really is the the anxiety and the stress that they are that they are suffering. Um, one of the things that we have in our unit, and I know other units have something similar, is a stoplight. And it's a red day, a yellow day, or a green day. And those are ways that we trigger, that we cue parents to know um, how much interaction they can have with their child that day as far as providing the care. So if it's a green day, they can get the kid out of bed, they can do all of the um you know, all pretty much all of the care that they that they want to do and are capable of doing. And if it's a yellow day, they might help with the bath or change the diapers. And if it's a red day, they might just hold the hand or read a story mm-hmm. or do something like that, just as a way to engage with them and let them know, have a visual cue when they walk in the room about how they can they can participate in the care today. Yeah, I think something like that would be great. Um, you know, and like Amy was saying, going through f- with families, like how, what specifically they can do to interact with their child. Um, you know, I really think parents, like, they want to know what, what the expectations are for their child and what the expectations are for, the, for them and what they can do to help, um, you know, 
contribute and kind of further the progress, you know, so much control is taken away from them. Um, so showing them how they can still be part of their child's care is, is really empowering. Yeah, I think I, I love that idea of that sort of daily assessment and giving parents um, that instruction each day on what they can do. I think my only thought um, with with that sign of the red is like, stop. And I would love each day to be green for parents, mm-hmm. right? And have it be, every, we want you to be a part of, of your child's care every single day, right? And so let's talk about what we can do today. Right. And let's, and it may change by the hour. We know these kids, they're so unstable. And so, um, yeah, I think that would be my only thought to like giving them a red sign is sort of this subliminal, like you're, you know, I I wouldn't want parents to think they're unwanted and, and I'm sure that that's not like, but, but I think just being careful with like, okay. And maybe ask parents, how does it make you feel when you see this red sign? And, you know, even the yellow, like, I just think that, there has been decades of at least, you know, in some of the CICU cultures that that I've been in, it's been don't touch the baby. Parents should not touch the baby. And I am I feel like so much we need to be working against that message that like, no, 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 this is your baby. You are welcome here. And we are going to partner with you to care for this child in every single moment. Um, and I think that that's where that parental role alteration, it, it is so important that we want it to be so welcoming to these parents. And it's a very traumatic environment for them to be in. And it's up, up to us to support them to navigate that environment and to support them to navigate the roller coaster ride of the ups and downs of their child's um, post-operative course. And what do you think, you know, future directions are from from your standpoint, Amy, as far as being able to look into this problem more and be able to address it um, globally? Yeah, so I'm I'm still working on some studies describing that we've been doing so much work with mothers. And so I really also think that fathers are important. Um, Erica Sood and her team at Nemours has done some lovely studies examining fathers' experiences. And I'm hoping to soon publish some results looking um, at um, comparing mother-father pairs, kind of thinking of sex as a biomarker, right? So like, what are those differences between the mothers and the fathers? And making sure that any interventions that we develop can not just be targeted toward mothers but towards fathers as well. Um, And so I am showing that parental role alteration is still coming up as a as a theme for both mothers and fathers. So I'm really working to get support to do an intervention that enhances parental role in the ICU. I've done some interventional work. I have two studies out. One is published, one is in press in Joggin showing um, skin to skin holding as an intervention. That is the, the one study came out in pediatric critical care medicine showing the safety and feasibility for infants. Um, but I also examined mothers and I looked at um, anxiety symptoms and actually salivary cortisol and both anxiety and salivary cortisol were reduced when moms are holding their infants in both pre and post-operative periods. Um, And interestingly, even 30 minutes after they place their child back into the crib, um, their their levels are still low. So it has sort of this like prolonged effect. So I do think that having, um, at least from, from some of the work that I've done, that this can be a really beneficial intervention for mothers in the ICU, but I'm hoping to show that it'll be helpful for fathers as well. And um, I think there's tons of work that we need to do, not just at like, one point in time, but longitudinally and seeing if we can be doing um, more interventional work that looks at the benefits that enhancing parental role in the ICU can have a prolonged effect on parent mental health and ultimately neurodevelopmental outcomes of the child. 
Well, I'd like to ask each of you um, in closing, if you had one practical tip that you could give to bedside CACU nurses or bedside providers um, for how we can do, that we can incorporate into our daily workflow to try to support these families a little better, what would that be? For me, hands down, it would be get that baby held every day as often as possible. And if the baby can't be held, um, find a way for parents to connect with their child, to touch their child every day. I, I think for me, I would say just like let go of biases that you have and invite that family to participate every single day. And know that if you are turned down one day, there might be something else going on. So just keep on inviting that family um, to participate, um, showing them what they can do. And um, like I said, just kind of like let going of any preconceived biases. I think we all have at some point. I think those are both great tips and great um, points and easy for us to incorporate into, into our work currently. And I thank you both for your insight and your willingness to participate. We've enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member, enjoy updated info on educational resources, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under Creative Commons 3.0 distribution license. Thank you, Paige and Amy. Thank Thank you. you.